One of the famous works that came out of the Protestant Reformation was a book called Table Talk. This book was not exactly written by Martin Luther, but it was the recorded conversations that Martin Luther had around his dinner table. You see, Martin Luther and his wife Katie had been donated Uh, They were given as a wedding gift an enormously large house. And basically, Luther filled that house with seminary students who he would teach and they could learn. And much of the time of their learning was around the table. And so these students would take copious notes of the conversations that Luther would have and the questions they would ask and the different responses And these students recorded those responses that the teacher, their master, their teacher was teaching, and this was eventually published and became known as Table Talk. Well, there's something of that going on here in John chapter 13 through 17. It's Table Talk, the last table, the last supper of our Lord as he's teaching and instructing his disciples. And I don't know if James and John and Peter were there scribbling down notes uh, or what the dynamic of how they were able to, to remember the words that Jesus spoke. We know certainly that this was part of the inspiring work of the Holy Spirit to make sure they, they remembered the words of Jesus. But, but these are Jesus' instructions to his disciples on his last night before he is going to die, going to be executed. And perhaps, arguably, one of the most shocking things that Jesus says around the table with his disciples is that it is better for me to go. It's better for me to depart. It's better for me to leave. Now, think about this for a second. Would you like to be able to sit around the table with Jesus bodily in the flesh? Would you like to have witnessed His miracles? Would you like to have been able to hear His teachings firsthand? I think most of us would say yes. Would you prefer that to the situation that you find yourself in right now? I think most of us would say yes. And yet Jesus flips that on its head and says, no, actually, it's better for me to go. It's better for me to go so that the Holy Spirit may come. Now, I'm just going to leave that for now, okay? Because we're going to get to that later in the passage. Jesus is going to tell us why it's better for him to go. But let's pick it up in the middle of this context of this table talk this night before Jesus leaves and goes to the cross. He's done amazing things like wash the disciples' feet. He's been teaching them about the Holy Spirit. He's been teaching them about how He is the the true vine and they are the branches. And now He's forewarning them that they are going to face tremendous opposition. That the world is not going to embrace the things that The apostles are going to teach them, and they're not going to say, wow, this is so amazing that many of them 
many of the people who hear the message of the apostles will have hatred and animosity. And they need to understand that. Now some will bow, and Jesus is going to talk about that later. But mostly they will have opposition. And so this morning I want us to to think about how you must persevere amidst persecution and even amidst the departure of Jesus. And we're going to kind of unpack that, that you must persevere amidst persecution and the departure of Jesus, namely Jesus not being here with us. The first is you must persevere. We see this in verse 1. And this is kind of what pervades this entire section. These things, Jesus says, I have spoken to you so that you may be kept from stumbling. These things. Now, this is a phrase that's repeated at least five times in the section. And, and it's, it's talking about all that Jesus is telling them. These things, all that I'm instructing you, all this table talk, all this instruction on this last evening before I'm going to depart, this is so that, I'm giving this to you so that you will not stumble. You will be kept from stumbling. Now this phrase, to be kept from stumbling, is, is a phrase that is common in the Gospels and the New Testament. And almost always, it has to do not with mere stumbling and falling, but the idea of falling away from Christ, turning your back away from Jesus, not persevering in following Jesus. And, and again, this is in the context of one of them who had stumbled, who had fallen away from Jesus, namely Judas, one whom Jesus says was a devil from the beginning, one who did not have genuine faith. And so it's in the midst of this that Jesus tells them he's giving them this instruction so that they will not fall away, so that they will remain steadfast. This phrase is used in John 6, 61, when Jesus says, it says, but Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumbled at this, said to them, does this cause you to stumble? Does this cause you to turn away from me? And we know that's what he's talking about because in John 6, 66, it says, as a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. It's also used in Matthew 24, verses 9 and 10, what's commonly called the Olivet Discourse. It says, then, Jesus says, then they will deliver you to tribulation, will kill you, and you will be hated by all nations because of my name. And at that time, many will fall away. Same verb that's used here in John 16. Many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. And then perhaps more famously, it's used in that parable of the soils in Mark chapter 4 when Jesus tells that parable of the sower who went out to sow seed. And the seed falls on four different kinds of soil. Remember, some falls upon the pathway soil and it's explained that, that, that the birds come and gobble up the, the seed and it never penetrates. Some falls upon rocky soil that's a, a very thin layer of soil that has a, a flat rock 
a bed, flat bed of rock underneath it. And in that soil, it says, it seems to receive the seed of the Word, but then persecution and affliction come, and they fall away. Same word used. So many times in the Gospel, this phrase is used to speak of people turning away or falling away from Jesus. This highlights the necessity of persevering in the Christian faith. That Jesus was giving this instruction so that they would persevere, so that they would not fall away. Perseverance in the Christian life is a necessity. It's a necessity. Donald Carson, his friends call him D.A., says, the greatest danger the disciples will confront from the opposition of the world is not death, but apostasy. That means turning away. The danger was real when John wrote these words, though elsewhere he develops a theology to account for defection while maintaining the security of the believer. What he's saying there is, yes, the New Testament does teach that all those who are Christ are held by him. We saw that in John chapter 10, where Jesus says, I I hold my sheep in my hand, and they will never perish. I give them eternal life. And my Father, who is greater than all, he also holds them in his hand. The believer is secure. But this security that guarantees that all of Christ's own cross the finish line and make it to heaven dying in faith, it doesn't happen in a vacuum. It doesn't happen without the responsible choices of his own saying, I'm going to continue to follow Jesus today. I'm going to continue to trust in the saving gospel of Jesus today. And tomorrow, and I'm going to keep believing until I breathe my last breath, I'm going to hold on to Jesus. Now, if you're reading your New Testament rightly, you understand that you're holding on to Jesus is because Jesus is holding on to you, but you must hold on to Jesus. And I say this with solemnity, if you don't hold on to Jesus to the end, you will perish. You must hold on to Jesus. Listen to the Apostle Paul in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 22 and 23. It says, He has reconciled you in His fleshly body through death in order to present you before Him holy and blameless beyond reproach if indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard. So the Apostle Paul says, you have been reconciled. It's a done deal. You're in. Ah, but you must continue. You must continue. Even from the lips of our Lord Jesus Christ. In Matthew 24, in the same section which I quoted earlier, Jesus says, it is the one who endures to the end who will be saved. You will persevere if you are Jesus's, but you must persevere. And Jesus 
causes his people to persevere through his words. That's why he gives them his words. This is why Jesus says, I have told you these things so that you will not fall away. You must persevere. Secondly, you must persevere amid persecution. Verse 2, Jesus tells them, they will make you outcasts from the synagogue. But an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think he is offering service to God. These things they will do because they have not known the Father or me. But these things I have spoken to you so that when the hour comes, you may remember that I told you them. These things I did not say to you at the beginning because I was with you. Jesus talking to his disciples who the system in which they grew up under was the synagogue system. Now, if you look in the Old Testament for where Moses or Isaiah talks about the synagogue, you will keep looking forever because it's not there. Okay? They talk about the tabernacle, they talk about the temple, but there's no mention of the synagogue. The synagogue system arose uh, right after the Maccabean period between the Testaments, between Malachi and Matthew, basically. And it was a way in which the Jewish people could instruct their young people, instruct their people in Torah, in the, in the Scripture. And they would meet every Sabbath day for times of instruction, for times of Scripture reading. And then the synagogue became uh, the place not only of instruction, but it became syn synonymous with the whole uh, system of Jewish life. So that the idea of Jesus saying that they will make you outcast from the synagogue was to be cut off from God's people. To be cut off not only from gathering with God's people on a synagogue Sabbath to receive that instruction, but to be cut off from them in your social relationships to be cut off from them even in your economic relationships so that you would not be able to buy or trade or sell with your other fellow Jews. And so Jesus is telling his disciples here that you are going to be cut off. You're going to be cut off from your Jewish society which meant either you would then be subject to life as a beggar or you would basically have to find some other place to live. And then in the second part of verse 2, it says, but an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think he is offering service to God. So not only is this going to cost you economically, monetarily. It's not only going to cost you in your relationships. It's not only going to cost you in your social status. Some of you will die. Some of you will be killed. Some of you will die the death of a martyr testifying for me because of your faith in me. And when they do this, they're not going to do it claiming to be instruments of Lucifer 
No, they're going to do it thinking that they are serving the Lord. They are serving the Lord. They're doing it in the name of religion. They're doing it to stamp out the blasphemers. To stamp out those who would go against Moses and against Abraham. And so again, this is very important because Jesus is telling his apostles, look, you need to understand, this is going to happen to you. This is what you signed up for. And friends, this is really the history of Christianity. Is that Christianity does not help you to win friends and influence people in society. That it may put a bounty on your head. Now, there is an ebbing and flowing of this throughout the history of civilizations. We see the early church... uh, Tremendous persecution and opposition. And then under the reign of the Roman Emperor Constantine, when he has this vision, he makes Christianity a state religion, and there's kind of a time of peace for a season. But then there's also opposition in in, in many parts of, of the world throughout the medieval period, and certainly during the times of the Protestant Reformation under the hands of the Roman Catholic Church. There's tremendous persecution. Many of the Protestant reformers died for their faith. When you look at the English Reformation, especially under the reign of Mary Tudor, also known as Bloody Mary, she put to death many of those English reformers. And then, of course, in Western civilization and these United States of America, we've experienced uh, quite a bit of freedoms because of the wisdom of our founders of this country and the idea of religious freedom that you know we can disagree with one another when it comes to religion but we're not going to kill one another that's kind of a good idea i think and because of it we've lived with you know some of you may be third fourth generation christians and have not experienced overt persecution under the threat of being jailed or the threat of having your life taken away from you. But you also know that that's not how it is in much of the rest of the world. That's not how it's been through much of Christianity. In fact, one of the Apostle John's disciples, a man by the name of Polycarp, he was under trial because he was considered an atheist. And so at his trial, he was told in front of a, a grand arena of people for, that he was supposed to say, away with the atheists. And that was, Christians were called atheists because they denied the, the gods of the Romans. Even though they believed in the true and living God. And so Polycarp, with a sense of humor, he said, away with the atheists pointing to all the Roman pagans around him. And Polycarp winds up testifying at his death. He was an aged man in the year 160 A.D. He said, Eighty and six years I have served him, and he never did me any injury. 
And then he said, how then can I blaspheme my king and my savior? Polycarp persevered in the midst of persecution. And he died believing. This is what Christ calls us to. We are to persevere. We are not to compromise. We are to hold fast to Jesus, hold fast to Him and all that He says and all that He's given us in His Word and to not budge even if it costs us our freedoms, even if it costs us our own lives. We've been observing these past two years quite a bit of governmental overreach. And it's been across the board, right? Across the board in virtually every country on planet Earth, governments have been grabbing tremendous power. And they've been telling Christians, churches, you can't meet. You have to do things this way. And it's been a kind of a test, hasn't it? as to how Christ's people will fare under persecution. And I think we'd have to say, by and large, much of the church hasn't done very well, hasn't demonstrated them to be stalwarts of the faith. But we must hold fast to Christ. We must persevere in the faith and do what Jesus tells us to do no matter what the cost, no matter what the implications. We bow to King Jesus. We don't bow to Caesar. We try to be accommodating where we can, but there's certain things that we cannot compromise. But also, more personally, if it was illegal to be a Christian. And there was an investigation conducted on your life. Would they be able to gather enough evidence to convict you? Would there be enough evidence that they could gather to convict you of being a follower of Jesus? Or would there be a lack of evidence That's a good question for us to ask ourselves if we're trying to live as kinds of closet Christians. Whether we're aiming to live a kind of public Christianity where we're vocal about our faith, where we're vocal about our convictions, where we're not afraid to be vilified. Friend, we are called to persevere even in the midst of opposition. This was what happened. I mentioned the parable of the soils earlier. It's that rocky soil, the soil that falls upon the rock, which seems to receive the word immediately, but then affliction and persecution come and it does not bear fruit. It falls away. Friend, there, there is a very real sense in which there is a kind of false Christianity that says 
that, that you can come to Jesus and live a life of comfort and ease and not face opposition in this world. And I'm telling you on the authority of God's Word, it's a lie. The prosperity gospel is a lie. But also a kind of self-help Christianity is a lie. Christians are meant to face opposition in this world. But we must persevere. We must persevere amidst persecution, but we also must persevere amidst the departure of Jesus. Because you, you may be reading this passage and thinking, man, this is pretty dark. This is pretty down. This doesn't leave us with much hope. Okay, follow me, guys, but they're going to kill you. What hope is there, right? Well, and then not only that, on top of this, their leader, their master is going to leave them. And he still hasn't come back. Verse 5, Jesus says, But now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you ask me, Where are you going? Now, there have been some questions previously in the section related to where Jesus was going, but they weren't real questions, you know? It's kind of like when, you know, um, you ask your child, Why didn't you clean your room? You're not really asking, Why didn't they clean their room, right? There, there's kind of an underlying assumption with the question, you should have cleaned your room. There's actually no good reason why you should not have cleaned your room. Well, in a similar way, the disciples previously had asked things about Jesus, where he was going, but they weren't really asking where he was going, and this is what Jesus is touching on. You didn't ask where I'm going. You're, you're actually not concerned about me. You're concerned about yourselves. Verse 6. But because I have said these things, sorrow has filled your heart. You're, you're sad hearing about my departure. The prospect of Jesus' leaving was leaving them with quite a bit of separation anxiety. But then Jesus drops this bombshell on them, verse 7. But I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Jesus says to them, point blank, it's better for me to leave. Okay, Jesus, this needs some explanation. It is to your advantage that I go. It's better for me to go than for me to stay. Okay, Jesus, why? Well, he tells them why. For if I go, the helper, if I do not go, I'm sorry, the helper will not come to me. But if I do go, I will send him to you. In other words, in the grand scheme of redemptive history, Jesus' death and resurrection was a necessary precursor to him sending the Holy Spirit. And so what he's saying, it's better for me to go, it's better for me to die, to rise again, and then to send you the Holy Spirit rather than for me to stay here with you. It's better. This is shocking. 
But when you think about it in the context of what Jesus is saying, Jesus has been with them for three and a half years, right? But now in the sending of his spirit, he is able in a very real sense to multiply his ministry through the spirit in a way that he could not do during his earthly ministry. By the end of Jesus' three, three and a half years on earth, how many followers of, their, of his were there? Remember the beginning of the book of Acts? 120. 120. By Acts 3, how many followers are there? 3,120. <laughs> After Pentecost and the sending of the Holy Spirit, all of a sudden, Jesus and the voice of Christ and, and the work of Christ goes forth in a way in which His work did not go forth when He was here bodily. And this is what we see. This is, Jesus is now going to explain something of the ministry, the work of the Holy Spirit is going to do. Now again, this is tremendously important. Jesus has just told them, you are going to face tremendous opposition. You're going to be kicked out of the synagogue. Some of you will die, and you will die, and the people who will kill you think they're offering service to God. But I'm telling you, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit, and He is going to triumph in the hearts of men. He is going to conquer unbelief. He is going to bring conviction of sin. He is going to draw people to me so that some will believe. Jesus, how are you going to pull that off? I got a plan. I'm going to send my spirit. And so Jesus continues. But I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. Verse 8, and he, he, when he, that is the Spirit. And let me pause here. One of my pet peeves is when people call the Holy Spirit an it, okay? Please do not do that in my presence. I may break out into convulsions. The Holy Spirit is a he, not an it. The Holy Spirit is not a force. The Holy Spirit is a he, okay? When he comes, that is the Holy Spirit, he will convict the world, the world, namely the world that hates Christ. He will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. That this Holy Spirit that Jesus is going to send from, from Pentecost onward, he is going to be on, an, on a mission. And his mission is going to be one of convicting work. Now, the word translated here, convict, there's something of a debate over whether Jesus means it in a more negative sense that he's going to kind of like indict people in a kind of way of judging. The Holy Spirit is almost going to be like a judge. I don't think that's the sense here. It's, it's more the idea he's going to rebuke, he's going to convince people concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. And one of the reasons is because the overall context of Jesus saying it's better. 
if, if, if he's talking about the Holy Spirit convicting in the sense of judging people, then it doesn't seem to be much of an advantage for them to go, for, for Jesus to go. But the fact that he is going to go and the Holy Spirit is going to convince people concerning, convince the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, he is going to do this work in people's hearts so that their minds are changed when it comes to unbelief, that their minds are changed when it comes to righteousness, that their minds are changed when it comes to judgment. He's going to do this work. He's going to convince them of the solemnity of sin. Isn't that one of the first things that the Holy Spirit does in the heart of a person? Think of your own situation. You were walking through life doing what everybody else did. And then all of a sudden there's this convincing of sin. I've sinned against God. I've rebelled against Him. And then he explains further what he means by this sin. He says, concerning sin, in verse 9, because they do not believe in me. Where all of a sudden a person becomes increasingly aware of their own wretchedness, that they have not believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's exactly what they need to do, is to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. That they are all of a sudden able to agree with the Apostle Paul and his shocking statements in Romans chapter 3. There is none righteous, no, not even one. There's none who does good. There's none who understands. All have turned aside. All together they have become worthless. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they practice deceit. He goes on and on about how man is corrupt and sinful. And this is what the Holy Spirit does. Not in a mere way where you say, well, nobody's perfect. That's not necessarily the work of the Spirit. Any fool can acknowledge that nobody's perfect. But those who are the recipients of this work of the Holy Spirit all of a sudden realize, I've offended the Holy God. I need to believe in Jesus. He is the one who deals with my sin problem. This is what we see throughout the book of Acts, right? Remember I said how they went from 120 to 3,120? What happened in the midst of Peter's preaching where he tells them point blank, you've crucified the righteous one. Your hands are guilty. You cried, crucify him, crucify him. You remember how the people responded? Men and brethren, what must we do? Peter says, repent and be baptized. All of a sudden, they're convinced of their sin. Remember the Apostle Paul and Barnabas later on as they were apprehended in Philippi and they're in that, that, that uh, Macedonian jail and all of a sudden, and they've been singing hymns throughout the night, right? That's not normal, okay? They never had prisoners like this. They're singing throughout the night and then there's an earthquake and all of a sudden the, 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 the jail cells are open, 
And Paul exhorts all the prisoners to stay put. And the Philippian jailer is ready to take a, a sword into his chest. And Paul says, don't do that. We're all here. You don't need to kill yourself. Your life's not over. And no doubt that Philippian jailer remembered these men who were singing songs throughout the night and their unjust apprehension and incarceration. And he says, what must I do to be saved? He realized he needed to be saved. He needed to be delivered from the condemnation and guilt that he deserved. He was weighed down. He was convinced of his sin that he did not believe as he needed to believe. And he asked Paul and Barnabas, what must I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. This is that work of the Spirit. One commentator says, much wrong with us and therefore for us to be saved. There's much wrong with us and therefore for us to be saved only requires a list of rules or rituals to obey. No, Christianity begins with the premise that humanity is by nature destitute, blind, naked, deaf, utterly dead to sin. It is the work of the Spirit for which we must pray to take our words and our lives and convince the world of the reality of their deadness before a holy God so that they might cry out to Christ to be saved. But he not only convinces of sin concerning unbelief, which is the greatest of sins, he convinces of the reality of righteousness. Notice what he says here, righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. This is kind of the flip side of sin. All of a sudden, when you realize your sin, you realize there's a standard of righteousness. And Jesus himself is that standard of righteousness and you're guilty before him. And that he's come and you must believe in him. And then he says one more thing. Not only concerning sin, concerning righteousness, he also says concerning judgment. Judgment, and then he goes on to explain what he means by this in verse 11, because the ruler of this world has been judged. There's this realization that to be on Jesus' side is to be on the right side of history. That through Jesus' death and resurrection, he was putting his foot upon the throne of the arch enemy of God, namely Satan, and he was the victor. That while Satan, through that serpent in the Garden of Eden, had dragged Adam and Eve into sin and rebellion, and has been doing the same ever since to drag as many people to hell as he could, Jesus, through his death and resurrection, was putting his foot upon the throat of the serpent and was triumphant, liberating people from sin and judgment and guilt and ultimate damnation. That Christ is the victor. And so this is what the Holy Spirit does. He convinces. 
He changes people's minds so that they embrace Jesus. They see their sin. They see Jesus and his righteousness. They see that he is the victor in judgment and they hide themselves in him. Friend, have you experienced something of this work of the Spirit in your heart? And it is an ongoing work, by the way. It's not a work that the Holy Spirit starts and then, well, you're on your own now. He regularly does this work of convincing us of sin, of righteousness and judgment convincing us of our need of Jesus. He is that one who is the spotlight upon Jesus. He shines his light upon Jesus and we see our need for Jesus regularly. This is his work that he does. And friend, if, he's, if you've never experienced something of this work in your heart and in your life, I commend you to Jesus. I commend you to see your sin that you are far more wicked and rebellious than you realize, that you have not obeyed God as you ought to, you have not loved your neighbor as yourself, you have not loved the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. You are guilty before Him, and you need to believe in Jesus as the one who takes the punishment for your sin. You can go to Him now, and if you go to Him, you'll know that the one he sent is on the prow in your heart. He is drawing you to Jesus. He is doing that convincing, that regenerative work in your heart. Go to Jesus. Don't delay. If there's any flicker of a convincing of sin in your heart, turn to Christ. Don't turn inward. Don't turn toward yourself. Turn to Jesus. Turn outside of yourself. The solution is not within you. It's outside of you. It's found in the Lord Jesus Christ. Indeed, it is better. As Jesus said, it was better for him to go, that the Spirit might come. As J.C. Ryle says, if Christ had remained bodily with the disciples, he could not have been in more places in one, at one and the same time. The presence of the Spirit whom he sent down would fill every place where believers were assembled in his name for every part of the world. And if Christ had always remained bodily with his disciples, there were not there would have been less room for the exercise of their faith and hope and trust than there was when he went away. Their graces would not have been called into such active exercise and they would have had less opportunity of glorifying God and exhibiting his power in the world. And then lastly, he says, they did far more for Christ when he was absent than they had ever done when he was present. And so the, true, the same can be true of us. You see, this is, this is the hope for the world. That as we testify of Jesus, and that's at the end of chapter 15, 
Jesus says to his disciples, you will testify of me. We testify and we beg the Holy Spirit of God to accompany that testimony. And the Spirit of God does his convincing work. Friends, this is huge because this means that it's not ultimately up to us. This is why we're not Muslims who put a sword to people's throat and say, submit to the Lord Jesus Christ. Because it's not a sword that convinces of sin and righteousness and judgment. It's the Spirit of Almighty God. This should inform our evangelism that we have to be faithful to the message that the Spirit of God uses to transform hearts and lives. Not try to manipulate the message or shave off those, those harder edges of the message, but to just let the message be unleashed and pray and beg for the Spirit of God to do that work. This is why we must not be prideful in our apologetics and defending the faith. I like apologetics. I like to refute, to close the mouth of unbelief. Sometimes I think I like it for sinful purposes. We can and should use apologetics, but we need to understand that while we may close the mouth of an unbeliever, it's only God, the Holy Spirit, who can open up their hearts. Only He does that work. We preach Christ, and God causes light to shine out of the darkness. We sow seed, we water, but who causes the growth? God causes the growth. Now we have our role to do, but it's only God who can make it effective. Friends, this this is... Christ's powerful, ongoing work in this world. This is what He does. This is the power of the Gospel when the Holy Spirit takes root in a person's heart and life. He upheaves and transforms their life. This is His work. All too often, I think, Christians become discontent with this simple work. And they look for something else. There's got to be something else out there. There's got to be more to the Christian life. There's got to be more to God's work in this world than testifying of Jesus and the Spirit doing work in people's lives. That just sounds too simple. And many rush off to all manner of kinds of things, looking for signs and wonders. And... But it's this simple work that God entrusts to His people and ultimately to the Spirit of God to make it effective. During the Protestant Reformation, I mentioned Martin Luther at the beginning in his table talk. Luther was an instrument in God's hand for the Protestant Reformation in Germany and bringing the gospel to the
people in Germany. But as he, his life was drawing to a close, he became very concerned that the gospel would be lost again within a generation. And in February 1546, Luther preached his last sermon in his hometown of Eisleben. He said this, In times past, we, we would have run to the ends of the world if we would have known a place where we could have heard God speak. But now that we hear this every day in sermons, we do not see this happening. You hear it at home in your house. Father and mother and children sing and speak the Word of God. Preachers speak it in the parish church. You ought to lift up your hands and rejoice that you have been given the honor of hearing God speak to us through the Word. Oh, people say, what is that? After all, there's preaching every day, often many times a day, so that we soon grow weary of it. What do we get out of it? All right, go ahead, dear brother. If you don't want God to speak to you every day at home in your house and in your parish church, then be clever and look for something else. He says in Trayer, there is the Lord God's coat, namely the robe of Jesus. In Achan, our Joseph's britches and our blessed lady's chemists. Go squander your mo money, buy indulgence in the Pope's secondhand junk. What was he talking, to, talking about? He's talking about relics. This is what people during that day were turning to. They, wanted, they, they, they were becoming discontent with the gospel and the work of the Spirit in people's lives through the Word. And so they said, well... We need to go find some of Mary's milk. We need to find our Lord's robe. We need to go to these special relics. Pilgrims flock to various places to view these relics. Turning aside, becoming discontent with the plain work of the Spirit through the Word of God. Friend, this is what Jesus says is the hope for the world. The work of the Spirit through the testimony about Jesus. Let's not grow discontent with that. Let's pray.